0: Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Evan Thibodeau. Uh, I'm a member here, and I have the privilege of leading our youth group. So, any youth out there right now? All right. They make me feel more comfortable. I'm used to them. All right. Joe and the worship team, thanks so much for that time of worship. Just such a, a pleasure to week after week, to, to worship God together with you guys. It's just such a joy. It's one of those things that I look forward to every week and that really sends me out to follow Christ in the day-to-day. And so one of the things that I've loved most about coming here every Sunday is it's just our series through Acts. It has been so amazing to week after week just see what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, to see what that actually looks like lived out the way that it should be been such an encouragement. I think uh, last week, hearing just like the Holy Spirit in Acts and seeing that thread throughout. And then two weeks ago, was the last time that we were following the general narrative of Acts, we had Dennis preaching uh, with Paul in Athens. And they're just a wonderful reminder that, you know, as we speak the word, we're to do it boldly, we're to do it carefully, and we're to do it contextually. So last week we were in, or last time we were following the narrative of Acts, we saw Paul in Athens, and this week we see Paul in Corinth. And when we catch up to Paul in Corinth, he's kind of at an interesting, I guess, situation, kind of a low point, really, in his missionary journey. Actually, if we look at Paul's letter he writes later to the Corinthians, he tells them that when he came to Corinth, he was with them in fear and much trembling, which doesn't sound like a really like happy or exciting or, or good way to be. Like This is clearly a time where, where Paul is struggling in some ways. And what's exciting about that is that that's something that I'm guessing all of us can relate to. Like The truth is, following Christ can be hard. And so we get to see that even for Paul at times, it's hard. And what we see in this passage is how Jesus responds to Paul like when things are really hard, when it's hard to follow him. And I want us to notice four things in Jesus' response. We're gonna see that, first, Jesus goes with us. Like, he doesn't send us out on our own, he actually promises to go with us as we follow him. We're gonna see that Jesus is sovereign over our circumstances that he's ultimately the one that's in control of our situations. We're going to see that he's sovereign over the work that he has called us to. It's his plan, not ours. He's the one that's in control of the work. And we're going to see that Jesus is alive. Like, he didn't just die, he raised again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. And ascending into heaven doesn't mean that he's dead, doesn't mean that he's a spirit, doesn't mean that he's gone, like, entirely, like, he is still alive, and we're going to see that he is still actively working in the world, even after the ascension. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, could you open them with me to Acts chapter 18? If you don't have the Bible with you, or just want to look along in one of the Bibles that we have, we have Bibles in the, the center aisle, and in those Bibles, it's on page 927, I also just want to say that if you don't have a Bible of your own or if you just like ours, feel free to take it. Uh, We have a desire that everyone have access to God's word and so those would be our gift to you. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, I'm just so grateful for your word. It speaks life and truth into our lives. It shows us how to follow you. It tells us who you are. And so I just ask that today, as we read your word, that you would, you would speak to us, that you would speak through me, that you would, by your spirit, give me the words to say that might encourage all of us to, to follow more fully after you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Read with me in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. You should notice a couple of things just as the, the chapter begins. Paul's still alone. Usually on his missionary journeys, he's traveling with people. But in this case, in Athens, he was dropped off there because Silas and Timothy were going to go back to some of the churches they'd visited. But Paul wasn't able to because of the persecution. So Athens, he's alone, heads over to Corinth, and he's still alone at this point. We see in in Corinth, we hear the name Priscilla and Aquila, who, pretty important, you'll end up seeing them throughout Paul's letters as well. They end up becoming like co-laborers with Paul for the gospel and just like really powerful friends. At one point in Romans, Paul refers to them as his fellow workers for the gospel. And this is also the first time where we hear about Paul tent making. And so Paul actually quite often supported himself, and he did this By having a trade. And so that was tent making or it turns out that could have been leather working too. Hard to know exactly what it was. But he had a trade that actually supported himself at times. Although not always. There were also churches that at times gave money to support him. So that he could more fully uh, focus on the work at hand. And then once again we see that Paul is doing his usual thing when he goes to a new place. He's going to the synagogue and he's reasoning with the Jews and with the Greeks. And I love that the word used is reasoning just because it's, it indicates that he's thinking carefully about how to share who Jesus is. And just a good reminder to us that we should always be thinking carefully about how we can more, like, I guess, eloquently or uh, individually share Christ with the people that we're enacting with. We want it to be something that is, is reasonable, that it's reasoned, that it makes sense to the people that we're speaking with. Keep reading at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. At this point, we see Paul doesn't stay alone the whole time. Silas and Timothy catch up to him. And at that point, we hear that Paul is able to focus more fully on like preaching and teaching about Jesus. It's kind of an interesting note, but what the commentators say on this passage is that the reason Paul was able to kind of switch his focus to fully devoting himself to preaching and teaching was because at this time, Silas and Timothy came with a gift, more than likely from the Philippian church. And so now he no longer has to do his trade. He's able to focus fully on this. But I point that out mainly because one thing that I think is so cool about Scripture is that you don't have to read a commentary to figure that out. One thing that's really exciting is that if you read the letters that Paul wrote to these churches, you can pick up those pieces. You guys have probably realized, like, there's a book in the Bible called Philippians, which is actually a letter to the church at Philippi. There's two books called Thessalonians, first and second, which are letters to the church at Thessalonica. Same thing, first and second Corinthians, letters to the church at Corinth. And so I would just really encourage you guys that if you haven't been reading through, Paul's epistles that are to the places that he's been going as we walk through Acts, please, it is worth your time to start doing it. There are so many opportunities just to get better background information an understanding of what was going on in that context or even little things like, you know, we hear that when Paul entered Corinth, he was like in a place of fear and much trembling. And he tells us that in his letter to the Corinthians, It's well worth your time to read this background. It's just so cool to see that so often scripture interprets scripture and helps us understand it more deeply. At this point, something that we see quite often when Paul seems to be reading the synagogues, and that's that not everyone accepts the message. You see that the Jews actually oppose the message and begin to revile Paul and his message. It's just a hard thing to see. They're reviling it so much to the point that he actually no longer can teach in the synagogue, but actually moves locations. It's kind of convenient. It's just a house next door. And starts focusing more on reaching the Gentiles. It's not that he's no longer concerned with the Jews at all, but his focus is now going to be primarily towards the Greeks when he's in Corinth. And he says something kind of weird. He he says that he shakes off the dust, basically just saying that like, like, no, I'm, I'm going to be leaving this area. I'm going to be focusing on the Jews, on the Gentiles. What he also says is kind of odd. He says, your blood be on your own head. I am innocent. And I'm guessing no one ever... Have, have any of you guys ever said that in common language? Probably. It's kind of a weird phrase. But the general idea here is that Paul feels a great amount of responsibility an opportunity for reaching the Jews, like his people, his nation. And so now that he has actually shared the gospel in the synagogue, he's he's reasoned with them, he's gave them the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, that there's salvation in no other name, now the responsibility has been switched from Paul to the Jews. Now their blood is on their own head. Paul is innocent. And just for some greater background, if you take notes, just write down Ezekiel 33 and look this up later. But in Ezekiel, there's this idea of the watchman of Israel, and God actually gives this role to Ezekiel, saying that he is the watchman for Israel, and a watchman, right, is someone who would be like on the city walls, like looking out into the distance, watching for danger that's approaching. If there's danger approaching, his role then is to tell the city, to warn them that there's something they have to look out for. And if the watchman didn't warn the city when danger approached, fell asleep on the watch or whatnot, the watchman is then responsible for the lives of the city. But if the watchman tells the city that danger is approaching, and the city still does nothing for it, they don't prepare, they don't like, hide, then the city is responsible now for the danger that's approaching. And so, in this case, Paul kind of identifies with that sort of idea. He feels responsible for the Jewish nation, and this doesn't, isn't entirely the same responsibility that we should feel. He, Paul is not an apostle and has a unique responsibility because of that, but also as just a Christian. We're told to go make disciples of all nations. And I'm wondering, to what extent should we identify or should we feel a responsibility or an opportunity, really, to share the gospel with the people that God has brought into our, our circumference, our situations? So the Jews... Opposition and reviling of the message has caused Paul to have to switch contexts. And in Paul's situation now, we see that there is some fruit. The ruler of the synagogue comes to Christ, and a number of Gentiles in the area. But we have to remember just the greater context of Paul on this journey. And remember what he tells us in his letter to the Corinthians how this is a time of fear and much trembling. And if we think back to where Paul's been and what's been going on, it makes sense. Because like, one of the first places that Paul ends up in Macedonia is Philippi. And in Philippi, what happened? Paul was beaten with rods, and he was imprisoned. Okay. From there, he heads to Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, a mob surrounds the house where he was staying, and he has to like, run out of there at night. Not a very good situation. In Berea, it's a little bit better at first, But then the Jews from Thessalonica hear about it and end up coming down to Berea and running him out of that town as well, which is how Paul ends up being dropped off at Athens, just trying to kind of avoid the situation, avoid the trouble that continues to run him out of every city he's trying to minister in. I think it's safe to say that this is a pretty hard time for Paul. This is a time of great discouragement because now we see Paul in Corinth And it seems like the same thing is happening again. He's preaching the synagogue, reasoning, and the Jews oppose him and revile him. And he can only expect that, you know, best-case situation, they run him out of town. Worst-case situation, he's beaten again, or he's imprisoned, or he's killed. Like, who knows? It doesn't look good. Like, based on how things have turned out, this is a hard place to be. Sure, there's some converts, but I think in general, there would be a lot of fear and much trembling. And so I think what we notice is that when we're in the place of the greatest discouragement, that's where Jesus steps in to encourage Paul. Follow along at at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have met you in this city, who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Did you guys catch that? This doesn't happen all the time, but like, Paul's at this like unbelievably discouraging point, and Jesus shows up in a vision. This is pretty cool. This is really exciting. I think it's just at a pivotal point for Paul where it's exactly what he needs. And if you guys didn't believe me before that Paul was afraid... I think now we can be sure that Paul was afraid. Because you know what's the first thing Jesus told him? Don't be afraid. I think if Jesus tells you not to be afraid, you were probably afraid. Seems like a fair assumption. So he tells him, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Which, if Jesus stopped right there, not very helpful. It's like, okay, I'm terrified. Like, and now you tell me, okay, you shouldn't be scared. Don't don't be scared and just keep on doing the thing that's really scary. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And what he says next is so important. Jesus says, I am with you. And that's our, our first point, right? Jesus goes with us. He doesn't send us out alone. He doesn't send us out just to do his work and then leave us. He sends us out and he goes with us. I want us to notice just how comforting this idea of Jesus going with us should be. I think the best way to think about this is, is thinking about a child waking up from a nightmare. Um, how many parents know exactly, like, the first thing that any child, like, says when they wake up? It's like, Mom, Dad, or how many kids know the experience of waking up from a nightmare and just, like, the terror that is, and instantly you just like, where is Mom or Dad? I mean, I'm 28 years old now, and I can still remember that experience of waking up just petrified in bed, sitting up upright, and just crying out, like, Mom, Dad, and just absolutely just like in pain because of the fear. And, you know, Mom or Dad comes running, comes, sits down next to me, puts an arm around me, and it's not that I don't remember the dream anymore. It's not that it wasn't still hard. My mom or my dad is there. Like it's okay now. Like the one who like is in control, like is with me. And even though like it's it might still be scary, it's okay. Breathing starts to settle down. (sighs) Like it's okay. Like mom or dad is there. Having Jesus go with us, we should understand in the same way. Jesus is the one that's in control. He's in control of all the situations that we're running into, and he's with us. He hasn't sent you out to do this hard thing alone. He's right there with you in it. What could be more comforting than that? It's important to note, too, that this isn't just a promise that Jesus makes to Paul. Would you guys remember the Great Commission? Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teach them to do all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus sends us out on his mission, but he goes with us in it. He tells us, I will not leave you or forsake you. He's with us in the hardest times, in times of greatest discouragement, right there with us. The second thing that Jesus says is, no one will attack you. And if we keep on reading 12 through 17, we're going to see that promise actually fulfilled. No one to attack you to harm you. I think notice too that he doesn't say that there's absolutely going to be no one attacking you. He says no one will attack you to harm you. So basically it won't be effective if they do attack you. So still could be kind of scary at times, but you know that ultimately things are going to be okay. So follow along at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. I want to point out one thing here that I just think is really exciting. And it doesn't sound like it on the, like at first, but Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. So the reason this is so exciting is because it's easy to, to think that You know what, what happens in this book is, is, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. And it is a long time ago, but 2,000 years, but it actually happened in real places. Like, Corinth is a plane ride over there, like, had the opportunity to walk down the streets. Like, this is a real place. And so when it talks about Gallio as Procons, that's a real guy. He has a Wikipedia page. Like, he exists. And what's really interesting is that Gallio was proconsul for a very short period of time. He was appointed around 50, 51 or so, and he got ill after a year or two and then had to resign. So he was only proconsul in this area for one or two years, which means that we can date Paul's time in Corinth with pretty amazing accuracy. And we know that Paul was there sometime between like 51 and 52 is the best guess, so right around 30 years after Jesus ascended is when Paul is in Achaia. Like, how exciting is that? Like, this, this isn't just, like, some myth. This isn't a fairy tale. Like, this actually happened. Like, we're reading history that like, has validity to it, can be verified with external sources. Like, this should really excite us. Like, it's, it's real. One of my, my favorite musical artists is a guy named Andrew Peterson. And one theme that shows up throughout his songs is this idea. The stories are true. It's really exciting, guys. These stories are true, and it transforms everything. But jumping back to Jesus' promise to Paul that despite people might attack, that no one will be able to harm him. What we see here is that the Jews basically unite and choose to attack Paul. And the way in which they attack him is through a legal battle. In this, in the Roman world, the Jews actually had their religion accepted by Rome. They were legally allowed to practice. It was one of the accepted religions. Not every religion was accepted, but Judaism was. And so the Jews thought through this, that if they can convince Rome, if they can convince Gallio in this case, that Christianity is not a part of Judaism, then all of a sudden Christianity is no longer accepted. All of a sudden, now, Rome is against Paul, not just the Jews. And so they bring this attack against Paul, and they, they give their message to Gallio. And it's kind of funny, because Paul is just about to say probably something amazing, because Paul usually says really great things. But Gallio just cuts him off and tells them, No. Seems like it's the same thing. Seems like this still falls into the same religion, Christianity is considered a sect of Judaism. And this is a big deal because now Christianity falls under the protection of the legal religions within the area. And Gallio is actually at such a high level, it'd be kind of like going to like the Supreme Court. Maybe not quite that high, but this sets a precedent so that now for the surrounding area, if anyone is like having a problem with the Jews and trying to bring something, or sorry, a problem with the Christians and trying to bring an attack against them, now I'd be like, oh no, Galileo said, falls under Judaism, it's accepted, it's allowed. So this is a big deal. It adds a lot of protection for Christianity for probably the next 10 years or so. And so Jesus fulfills that promise to Paul right there. But what I want us to notice is that Earlier in the passage, we heard about Priscilla and Aquila being kicked out of Rome by Claudius, and so we have in this one case Paul being accepted, Christianity being accepted by Gallio in his edict, and in another case, Priscilla and Aquila being kicked out of Rome. And the question is like, how? Do, like, why doesn't Jesus protect every like Christians everywhere? Like, why is it sometimes that? He seems to protect them. Other times, like, he just lets them get kicked out. Like, they had homes and businesses, and he just let them get kicked out. And I think what we notice is that Priscilla and Aquila get kicked out, and that's the only reason they run into Paul. And Paul ends up with these fellow workers for the sake of the gospel that are such an encouragement and help to him. And so what we notice is that we're not promised that same thing that Paul was in Corinth. And Paul's not promised this everywhere else either what we're promised is that Jesus is sovereign over our circumstances. And so this word sovereign, if you guys aren't familiar with it, sovereign is the idea that that God is in control. So whether Gallio decided to allow Christianity, like God was completely in control of that situation. And when Claudius decided to kick all of the Christians out of Rome, God was also in control of that situation. When we think of the idea of sovereignty and this control that's kind of like overarching, I think one really helpful instance, we think of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Right, Joseph was the favored son, but his brothers are not too happy with him, so they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, ultimately in prison, and then through God's providence, ends up as second in command in in Egypt under Pharaoh at just the right time when there's a famine in the land, that likely could have like, wiped out a ton of people in the area, and especially Israel, God's chosen people. And so, paraphrasing, but what, what Joseph says at the end of this is that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good, that so many people would be able to be saved, and ultimately that the Jewish nation would be able to be continued. And it's just the idea that all these different circumstances, individual people have responsibility for what they're doing, but God is the one who is like sovereignly in control of it all. God is the one that always works about his plans. And as we think about this, this could be a really scary idea. The idea of giving anyone absolute control is rather terrifying. And if they're evil, it's horrendous. Absolute control and like in an evil character would be horrible. But we know that that God isn't evil, but rather that God is the God who loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. And we consider that the one who has absolute control, that has sovereignty, is also the one that loved us to the point of sending his own son to die in our place. It's at that point that sovereignty (laughs) is such a beautiful thing and something that should cause us to trust God even more, to worship him, To be so thankful that he's the one in control ultimately and not ourselves. The third thing that we're gonna see is that Jesus is sovereign over the work he has called us to. The last thing Jesus says is, I have many in this city who are my people. It's kind of a weird way to phrase it, but the basic idea is that Jesus is telling Paul that there's many people still in Corinth who are going to accept Christ, who will become Christians, although they haven't yet. And I was trying to think through, like, what this might mean to Paul. Like, what would it be like if I had a vision of Jesus? That would be awesome. And Jesus told me that there are many in your office who are going to accept me. They haven't yet, but they're going to. Or I think about my family, and if, if God told me there are many in my family who are going to accept him, or many in my neighborhood, and as I think about that, I just think, oh my gosh, <laughs> that would be so exciting. That would be so encouraging. Like, I know that the labor that I have to put in now, like, like of course I'm going to keep on trying. Like, I know that people are going to come to Christ. Be so encouraging. And I think what we have to realize is that although that God hasn't told us necessarily in each of our spheres who might end up coming to him, what he has told us is that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into his harvest. He so says the harvest is plentiful, that there's, there's still a lot of people they're going to know, that are going to accept Christ. He also tells us in uh, Matthew 24, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And the basic idea here is that, it's just like, just the logic is, okay, before the end comes, the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. So, has the end come yet? No, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Which logically then means the gospel hasn't yet been proclaimed to all nations. The work is not done. Which means there's still people that are going to accept Christ. Which means there's still work for us to do. And we also know that it's ultimately God who changes hearts. Nothing that we say ultimately is what convinces someone to become a Christian. It's God working in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we know that there's still people that are going to accept. Maybe in your circumstance, maybe at work, in your neighborhood, overseas, in the Islamic State. Like, there are still people that are going to accept Christ because the end has not yet come. And we also notice that God is sovereign over the work. He's the one that's in control of it. He's the one that's working in people's hearts. He's the one that's ultimately drawing people to himself and he simply asks, will you participate in it? Will you be faithful to follow me as I lead? I go with you. I'm in control of the situations. Will we be faithful to participate in the work that God is in control of? The final thing that I want us to realize from this passage, it's You know, it's not actually, it's not something Jesus says. It's something that we all know. But it's something that I don't think we can emphasize enough. And it's implicit. Like Jesus speaks to Paul, like he knows what's going on. Jesus is alive. Jesus died. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. It doesn't mean that he's dead again when he ascended. Like, he's still alive. That changes everything. We, and I just think it's so cool, too, noticing, like, Jesus knows the situation that Paul's in. Like, he's aware of exactly where Paul's at, so he can tell him, like, don't be afraid. I'm going to protect you. I'm with you. Like, Jesus is still working in this world. He speaks to Paul clearly, like, right there, because he is alive, and ultimately, he's still speaking to us today clearly, too, and he does that through his word, right? We say that this word is living and active, this is the word of God. This is the word that Jesus speaks to us. Because Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. It changes everything. and it's Jesus is alive. Like He demonstrated that he has the power over the grave. Because he's alive, we can trust him that he actually can go with us. Because he's not dead. We don't follow a dead Jewish carpenter. We follow a resurrected Lord who goes with us on the mission. You know, it's because he is alive and he demonstrated that he has resurrection power. He has the power over death that we can trust that he actually is sovereign over our situations. He's in control of our situations, that he's in control of the work. The truth is, is that the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. Our passage ends with finishing out Paul's second missionary journey. You guys read with me at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue, and reasoned with the Jews... When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. At this point, Paul had already stayed in Corinth for at least a year and a half. Then he he heads on, like, clearly, like, after this vision of Jesus, he stays there for a year and a half. Like, he's encouraged to the point. Like, he's trusting in the truth that Jesus is with him, that Jesus is in control of his circumstances and the work that he's called him to. And it's, it's the encouragement that gets him through that gets him to do this. And then we see that Paul continues on with the work, like, despite the discouragement that we saw at the beginning fear and trembling. He continues on with the work that God has called him to. Heads to Ephesus and reasons in the synagogue there. He doesn't say there too long, but we know later that Paul comes back there, and it's a critical point of ministry later. And so right there, he ends up setting up the first kind of beginnings of that ministry. He heads down to Caesarea and then up to Jerusalem, down to Antioch, visiting the church that sent him, and ends up heading out again to visit the disciples and to encourage them. Like most of us know that as the story continues like Paul's not done with discouraging things. There's going to be more persecution. There's going to be more hard things. But clearly like based on what we see Paul's trusting in who Jesus is. He's he's trusting in the risen Christ that he goes with him, and that's enough for him to keep going. He trusts that Jesus is sovereign over his circumstances and over the work. I think most of us realize that following Christ is just hard at times. It's hard to be faithful, and especially that part that Jesus says, to speak and to not be silent. Like, that's honestly hard, and I'm so grateful that Jesus... Mentions that. Like he understands that that's hard. He knows it's a fearful thing to follow him. And so I want us to think when, when it feels tough to maybe share with a friend because previously it felt like it hurt that relationship, like remember, like Christ is with you in that. There's a, a manager at work that you know desperately needs the gospel and it feels like there might be an opportunity. But it, it's a scary thing so you don't know that that could affect that relationship, opportunities for promotion. Remember that Christ is sovereign over your circumstances. Or maybe there's like a neighbor and you've already tried sharing with one neighbor and there's no fruit from that. They're just opposed to the gospel like we saw the Jews were. And it's like, well, why would I try again? Remember that God is the one who is sovereign over the work he has called us to. Or maybe it's just you're doing the work, but you're just tired and exhausted. And it just feels hard at times. It feels like too much. Remember that Christ is the one who's conquered death, Jesus is alive. Jesus is the one that offers to the world the opportunity to be saved from sin and death by trusting in him.